to Exploring the Divine Feminine. I am Ramona Sidaway and I am your host for episode 37. I talk about anything as it relates to the Divine Feminine, especially within the context of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I talk about Mother in Heaven, women in the priesthood, partnership between men and women, anything that touches on that Divine Femininity. And um, a disclaimer, this is not an official, I don't speak for the church or talk about, I try to share official doctrine, but doesn't things that I share is this is not official. These are my thoughts, my opinions, and my feelings about women and in the church. Welcome. And if this is your first time, I hope you subscribe. And please share this podcast with your friends. I would greatly appreciate it. If you have anything that you want to ask or reach out to me, then you can do so through my website. The contact form is not working at the time. So you just scroll all the way down and you click on my email address and it will, you can send me an email, RamonaSidaway at gmail.com. These next three episodes are going to be talking about um, Mother of All Living how women are that and how it's connected to the priesthood, priesthood ordinances that may involve women and um, how women are tied to the resurrection. Always excited about these topics. Let's talk about what priesthood is, about the keys of the priesthood. Now, when you hear the word priesthood, it's going to vary depending on your religion and your gender. And even within the church, um, within the LDS Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's, it gets a little fuzzy for, for members. They, you know, as members, we think we have the doctrine, the principles well in hand, when sometimes we tend to blur a lot of lines and the term, especially the term priesthood, it's used in two very powerful yet distinct ways. And I think because of the continuing restoration of the church that this becomes Um, more understandable. So first, priesthood is the term used to describe the total power and authority of God. So God works with, that's the power that he has, is he works with priesthood power. And the second priesthood term that is used is the power and authority that God gives to ordained priesthood holders on earth to act in all things necessary for the salvation of God's children. So the priesthood, ordained priesthood holders, they help bring about those ordinances and allow us to make covenants in order for us to return to our heavenly parents, in order for us to be sealed with our families. Um, A lot of this is, you know, anything to do with those covenants on the covenant path, like baptism, the sacrament, temple ordinances, and the like. Misunderstanding can arise when people both in and out of the church equate priesthood ordination with only one of these definitions or use the concepts out of context. From my perspective, uh, I've witnessed these misunderstandings usually because a full understanding of the priesthood has not had not yet been restored, especially as I was growing up. Now the priesthood had been restored, but the understanding of it, and we were witnessing that at an astounding rate of, um, especially how women are becoming more and more, uh, our roles are more, uh, more understandable and how we are becoming more partners within that priesthood authority and power. Now we 
do not possess all of the priesthood keys on this earth. And I'm not referring to, we've got to take out of this conversation about the prophet and that he holds all the keys as it pertains to the, the um, ordinances and the covenants that we make on this earth. But there are some ordinances that we cannot receive while we're on this earth. So we'll go back to that first term of the priesthood where it relates to priesthood power and authority that our heavenly parents hold. Now I say heavenly parents, because a lot of times when the term God is used, I think of it as a mantle and it relates to both heavenly father and heavenly mother. And they're working together as a team. There are times when God is used and it's used within the context of heavenly father and I think that is, this is just my opinion, that is used in context with the covenants and those ordinances that we need here on the earth. And so he's, he's communicating to the male priesthood, you know, I mean, even the women help out a lot and are part of that authority. So I feel like that it's a lot of times we can just put them together as a unit and as a team. But in this section that I'm going to talk about, we will limit the pronoun to he, him, because that's where a lot of the definitions use that within the churchofjesuschrist.org. And so we're just going to stick with that. Now he holds unlimited, unbounded, and unending power and authority. I think they both do, but he has delegated some of his authority and power to ordain priesthood holders on earth, specifically that which is necessary to bring about the salvation of mankind. We talked about this, you know, baptism, temple ordinances, but the offices of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood do not constitute all of God's priesthood, does not constitute his total power and authority. And we're just going to go over just a couple of those that we know about specifically through Brigham Young. Um, some of those keys that we don't have yet at the moment, but that we know if we are faithful that we will have those in the future. Let's talk about similitudes, imagery, symbolism, and archetypes. And as anybody who's familiar with my podcast, I like to talk about these a lot within the scriptures, especially with women. I feel like what Heavenly Father, um, what our Heavenly Parents have done is even though so much of the scriptures are difficult to understand, whether it's through corruption of the Old Testament or the translation has gotten funky, or even the the lack of being able to communicate as clearly from the person who's writing. Heavenly Father understands that, and he always has a workaround of everything. And I feel like that he uses archetypes and he uses symbolism so that even if something is taken out, the things that are left in, there's still that power there, that um, that communication that is able to come to us through that story, through that imagery, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as, as a good one and an excellent allegory. Let's talk about the Garden of Eden. Eve at the time did not have children. She wasn't even pregnant. We know that through various means of the story of Adam and Eve as it is presented in the Bible and in the temple, that they are allegories and they're not meant to be viewed or taught as a, a purely historical record. We are taught that as men and women, we take upon those allegorical lessons as if we were Adam or Eve, depending on our individual 
gender. Let's take a look at Eve. If you want to know more about this, go into more depth. Um, you look on page 72 of my book, We Are Adam, the partnership of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and what it means for you. You can get that on Amazon, e-reader, um, you know, paperback. Um, I found it on Target. I mean, you can pretty much get it anywhere. On page 72, this talks about where he first met Eve. If he was just going to, it, it, we know he didn't name her. He called her by what she, either what she was, had already been known for or something that reminded him of, if he was going to name her as somebody that came out of his flesh, he would have used a, a derivative, a name that came from his name. Like he would have called her Adama since he was Adam and he didn't. And um, we know that he called her Eve, which is the mother of all living. And he referred to her as Isha. And if you remember from past podcasts or from my book, that Ish is a very elevated term for a man. And it's usually used, it's a Hebrew word, and it's used usually in the context of a prophet or even God, a holy man, a, a wise man, a royalty, that type of thing. But this time when he met Eve, this is the first time that the he is referred to as an ish, like that Hebrew word is used to identify Adam. Is before that, he was always identified as a lowercase, you know, lowercase a for Adam. We have the name Adam, the uppercase, and then the lowercase, which means uh, man of the earth. And then suddenly when he meets Eve, when he's introduced to Eve, he's now an ish. He's now man of higher status. And she is an Isha. Eve was always from the beginning known as Isha. She was always of an elevated status. A man will become an Ish when he marries a woman, an Isha. That tells you a lot about the elevated status of just being a woman, of, of a female. Ish, I-S-H, is also closely tied with Ash, E-S-H, which means a holy fire. And I find this interesting because when he, he meets her and he calls her those two things, you know, the mother of all living, and he recognizes something in her that is familiar to him. And I believe that is the heavenly mother. He sees this person that's probably not as fiery as the heavenly father or heavenly mother, but there was something powerful, something with the holy fire that she emanated. She reminded him, I believe, of the heavenly mother because she was familiar. She was not the first woman he had ever met because if, if she was, I think he would just have called her Adama or something else. Let's also look at the name, the mother of all living. And I have come up with four good points as to why she is considered the mother of all living, even before she gives birth, how any woman is a mother to all, regardless of marital status or number of children, well, except for one of these, but you'll understand. So number one, she will give birth to humans too. And, and this one's the most obvious and she will eventually be the first earthly mother to all. I mean, just go down all the generations. So she's the first mother. The second is she gave mortal life to Adam. She gave him life. She was the very first mortal herself. And she was the first uh, because she partook of the 
fruit first. And when she offered it to Adam and he partook, she gave him life just like a mother would. She gave him a mortal body, not in the same bodily process as mothers do now, but she became symbolically his mother, giving him life and gave him the opportunity to become mortal with the fruit. Now, number three, now all things because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve partaking of the fruit and they fell, everything else fell with them, the earth, everything in the earth, all the animals, the plants, and those, any living thing is now capable, has the opportunity to create life themselves. Once again, she gives life because of the fall and they are able to create life. Before that, everything that was on earth, it was in a suspended animation. There was not able to be a continuation of creation, life-giving life. And number four, women are usually the ones that will first awaken the spirit of Christ within another person. Most often in the case of a covenant mother raising a child in the covenant or a woman of any other faith, teaching that child about God about Christ. We awaken life, spiritual life into the people around us, our children in our relationships a lot of times. So those are the four things that I've come up with how Eve is the mother of all living on various symbolic ways. Now there's a lot of good that a man and woman can do on their own, both within and without the priesthood authority and power. But God did not just create a man and then a woman, they were commanded to cleave together. They were never meant to be completely separate. I mean, we're interdependent. We do things separate and we do things together. And I think just by being together, even when we do something on our own, we have that power of those covenants and that priesthood power that when we go through the temple, so they were commanded to cleave together, to work together as one unit. Now we live in a celestial world because of the celestial life that we lead. We are given the example of how God, the father and Jesus Christ work as one unit. That is a stepping stone for us to create Zion, to create that unity within our church, within our communities, within our marriages, our families. That's the beginning because it starts, it starts with baptism. It starts with coming to know our brother, Jesus Christ down the road, we're going to um, have more priesthood keys. We're going to know mother in heaven, and there's going to be a more of a progression, but the stepping stone, it starts with Jesus Christ. It's really important that we establish that relationship and those covenants start with Jesus Christ. Celestial world, we have that stepping stone of how how God the Father and Jesus Christ work together as a unit, right? As one, because it says the scriptures, they are one. However, In a celestial unity, there is a celestial divine pair. And I put those with a capital D and a capital P. And that's the unity of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mothers. They work together, intertwined as a cleaving, powerful couple. They work together as this couple. We know the separation of priesthood responsibilities and keys by now. And with the continuing restoration, and understanding a woman's role as a partner in the priesthood. The one on the grandest scale and expresses the similitude or archetype of what lies in store for us as we create our own divine pair is the patriarchal order. With the patriarchal order, only both genders together can enter into this priesthood order. 
with that knowledge in mind, let's look at the priesthood keys that have not and will not be delegated in this earth life that we're in now. We know that at least the keys of resurrection have not yet been given, nor creation in terms of other types of life. And there must be many other types of priesthood keys and that have to have a divine pair in order to work. The, this divine pair that we are creating on this earth, there's so much more to it that we will be involved in, especially as we are faithful and we keep those covenants that will happen as we go into the next phase, the next adventure into, into the next life. Now, Brigham Young taught that there are many aspects of God's total priesthood power and authority that are not delegated to men on earth. He said, quote, it is supposed that we have all the ordinances in our possession for life and salvation and exaltation and that we are ministering in those ordinances. This is not the case. We are in possession of the, of all the ordinances that can be administered in the flesh, but there are other ordinances and administrations that must be administered beyond this world. I know you would like to ask what they are. I love that he says that. I will mention one. We have not, neither can we receive here the ordinance and the keys of resurrection. This is one of the ordinances that we cannot receive here on the earth, and there are many more. And we find this in the Journal of Discourses. Now, other statements by Brigham Young in this reference include, quote, and when we when our spirits receive our bodies and through our faithfulness, we are worthy to be crowned. We will then receive authority to produce both spirit and body, but these keys we cannot receive in the flesh. We have not the power of the flesh to create and bring forth or produce a spirit with all the vaunted knowledge of the experts in the world. This has not been given to man, but we have the power to produce with the help of God, a temporal body for our children. The germ of this God is placed within us herein brethren. You can perceive that we have not finished and cannot finish our work while we live here on the earth. No more than Jesus did while he was in the flesh. We hold the authority to dispose of, alter, and change the elements, but we have not received authority to organize native element to even make a spear of grass grow. We have no such ordinance here. We organize according to men in the flesh by combining the elements and planting the seed. We cause vegetables, trees, grains, etc., to come forth. We are organizing a kingdom here according to the pattern that the Lord has given for the people in the flesh but not for those who have received the resurrection, although it is a similitude. And that is the key phrase that I want you to remember as we continue this discussion in this, in this episode. And then in the next two episodes that privileges and the opportunities we've been given here on this earth are similitudes of greater things. So we have the ability to create life and it takes two to do that. It takes a man and a woman in order to do that. It takes a priesthood ordinance, according to Brigham Young, to create spirit bodies, but it will take a divine pair to be able to do that. It takes a divine pair to create a world, to create animals and plants and to organize the elements this is where I think it's, it's when we talk about God organizing the elements and waiting for them to obey. I think that's Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. I think that's a mantle 
type of context that it's the two of them working together. Think of all of these things, opportunities that we have, the covenants that we make, the what we read in the scriptures, the stories, the allegories. Think of all of them as similitudes of something on a much grander scale. We have may not have recognized it yet, mostly because we have to stay on the covenant path long enough to partake of that particular fruit of knowledge on the path. Ever notice that all of the action in the temple takes place before we enter the celestial room? And there it seems to end abruptly, but we are given that time to contemplate, to meditate, to pray about our current celestial, or in some cases, terrestrial status, and what needs to come next to prepare us for the next phase of our development. All of that happens is the allegory. We are Adam and Eve, respectively, and we are learning about the different phases and the the different um, levels of development that we need to go through. And then it just kind of stops because there's more after that. We have the patriarchal order that we enter into, and that is a similitude of what we are able to do. We create our posterity and we are We're connected with all of our posterity. Unity, as some of you have already surmised, is not an easy task. Not at all. Not within families, within church congregations, business associates, communities, least of all marriages. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of creativity, a lot of thinking outside of the box, and there's no manual for it. I mean, yes, we have the scriptures, we have prayer, but every couple so different. We have our individual personalities, our quirks, our goals are different, but that is exactly what we are being asked to do to create Zion, to create that unity, to be perfect, which we remember means to be complete or whole. And how do we do this? We do this through Jesus Christ, through following his example through doing his works, calling upon the enabling power of the atonement to change who we are or to prevent who we do not want to be. So let's shift back to our original discussion about women, the priesthood, and the non-earthly keys such as resurrection, because we do have images of this in the scriptures. We have similitudes and archetypes, which are so exciting, and we just need to look and pay attention. So there's so much in the scriptures, so many archetypes and allegories that most of us, me included, have just barely scratched the surface. No wonder we are commanded to feast daily because it's going to take a lifetime. More we go on that covenant path, we get more and more knowledge and we see things. It's like the daybreak and how it gets brighter and brighter and brighter as we continue on that path, we stay on that path. Even if it feels like we're not moving forward, we are just by existing by uh, keeping our covenants day by day, we are, we continue to grow and progress. The content of this podcast came about through talking with some women about how they're disappointed that their daughters will never have the chance to become bishops or apostles or a prophet. That is one of the most common things that I hear about and the frustrations that women have in this earth life about in the church. We do know from the scriptures, though, that there have been female prophets like Deborah, 
but I doubt that will happen again on an Old Testament scale. It wasn't a gender thing, at least in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that women are not worthy. So women currently are not called as apostles. And to be honest, again, I doubt they will be in the future, but who knows? And only men were called as Jesus's apostles in his day. And we can ask, but why not until the cows come home? But let's examine the role of women in the gospel in Jesus's church, the gospel plan, both in the Savior's time, in our current time, and in the future. In episode 38, we will continue talking about women as witnesses to special spiritual events throughout history, uh, how women are involved in the resurrection, a little bit about the Mesoamerican mythologies that would have been around the time of King Lamoni and Abish, and how the people would have recognized what she was representing. Thank you so much for joining me today and exploring the divine feminine. I am always grateful that you take out the time to listen to me and to hear my thoughts on these things. Please join me on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find me on my website. Thank you again for joining me and have a divine day.